This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day. Just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. Quick question. Would you like a free case of craft beer? Yes, please. You can't have one, Brooksy, but as a listener to our show... We'd like to just say thank you. And with the help of our friends at beer52.com, just go to their website to claim a free case. What is Beer52? It's the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. So what they do is they look for exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's best breweries and then bring them back for their members. There's a there's a world of craft beer out there waiting for you to discover it. I'm, I'm in. Well, I know you are, but I think you're going to have to pay. This is just for our listeners. Fine. Every month focuses on a new country or theme. And if you sign up now, you get the chance to try a case of the best of British craft beers as part of their Summer Bangers selection for free. Nice. So that's got some of the country's best craft brewers like Northern Monk, uh, Ilkley, Thornbridge, uh, Red Willow. How do you know what's on offer? When you get your box of beer, there will also be a 100-page ferment magazine that tells you all about how they're made and so on. Could I just pretend to be a listener and, and get this deal? No. Why not? Because that's not the... Like, we've arranged this with them. It's for the listeners. They've sent us some to try anyway. All right. Do you know what I've got? Uh, for, you're about to tell me. It's called Tangerine Dream. Great 1970s prog rock band, I believe. That is banging citrus. You want to try it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's a good summer drink, that. Do you know what? Okay, here we go. This is good. So there's one other fruit in there. If you get it, you can have all of the rest of the case. <laughs> okay? So tangerine and what on the nose? Pineapple. Oh, no. Papaya. Oh, I nearly said papaya. Why didn't you then? I mean, I can't. Because actually, I, I don't, I I don't actually really like papaya, but that's that's really nice. As an avid listener of Sciences, you can try your first case for free. Uh, all you have to pay is two ninety five for the postage. So you get eight amazing craft beers, you get Ferment magazine, and you get a snack. We've got some like hot wing flavored crisps, and they are, are Moorish. Really good. Yeah, try to speak with my mouth full, but they are really good. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers, see what you think. If it's not for you, just pause or cancel any time uh, beer 52 has a five star rating on Trustpilot, uh, so it's easy to see that their members they're enjoying themselves they're yeah, enjoying yeah. the service aren't they yeah 
So just visit beer52.com. So that's beer as in the word beer and then the numbers 52.com forward slash science and claim your free case today. Before we start this episode, I just want to talk about Hannah Fry's new book. It's called Hello World, and in it she talks about how algorithms affect every element of our lives. So we've talked about this a lot on the show. We've got algorithms running so much stuff now, finance, security, data, even creativity, obviously driverless cars. So all kinds of aspects of the modern world are now governed by algorithms. So the question is, who designs them? How do they work? What's going on? Do we want them even? So you've got things like algorithms working in the justice system. People are being told by a machine, effectively, whether to allow someone out on parole, which is not something that any of us really are very comfortable with yet. So you have to ask yourself the question, though, do you prefer humans who might judge you based on like what you look like or the expression on your face? They might judge you based on what mood they're in. If their local football team has just lost a game and they actually, you know, they're just feeling fairly pissed off about the world. Or do you want a machine which has no sort of prior mood? It has no problem with what you look like or the expression on your face. All you need to know is that the algorithm works and it's trained on good data. And those inconsistencies that humans bring to the whole equation are why algorithms are being brought in to decide things in the justice system. And it's interesting because Hannah says in her book that before she started looking into these things, She was definitely one of the people that said, you know, you shouldn't have algorithms. You shouldn't have machines operating in courtrooms. But during the process of research, she's actually shifted her views based on what she's discovered about how all this works. So in the book, Hannah lifts the lid on the inner workings of algorithms, sharing basically the good, the bad and the ugly and how they're going to define everything in our future. Hello World is out on the 6th of September, available for pre-order from Amazon. And the audiobook is out now and it's read by Hannah herself. And you can follow Hannah at, at FryR Squared on Twitter. Okay, let's get on with the show. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. bit curious about it doesn't the bringing back to life what was once dead hold any intrigue for you you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind dead is dead frankenstein frankenstein you're putting me on no it's pronounced frankenstein Nights of telling ghost stories were intermixed with discussions of science and speculation about the principle of life and if there could be some material, some spark that was the stuff of life itself. Life! Life, do you hear me? Give my creation So there was a guy called um, Bakken who remembered as a child going to see the 1931 Boris Karloff Frankenstein film and he went away and he invented the first portable pacemaker. So science has influenced Frankenstein, Frankenstein has influenced science. Hello and welcome to Science Ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. So, the format of the show, 
I feel like you should know this by now, but just in case, we take a piece of fiction and we ask one big scientific question that arises from it. And this week, it's Brooksy's turn. What have you got for us? I have a timeless classic, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Published in 1818, uh, which obviously is uh, 200 years ago this year. Mm. Uh, Read it? I can't say I have, actually. No? No. I mean, I've seen plenty of film versions. Right, yeah. And obviously, it's a kind of part of the... uh, It's it's part of culture. culture. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, I mean, I I actually read it at school. I read it again uh, this weekend, just to kind of get back on top of it. And? I wasn't a huge fan, if I'm honest. I know she was like mugging off an eighteen-year-old girl. <laughs> well, you know, she's she's a writer. She's publishing a book. Actually, it was published anonymously the the first time it came mm-hmm. out. And um, this, I mean, obviously, the premise is extraordinary and really good, and it's the first sort of attempt to to put science into fiction like that. So it should be right up my street. But it's a bit overwritten in places, and there's weird kind of plot holes in, in the whole thing, which just kind of throws me off slightly. I don't think you get away with it now. Hmm. I think you should have a bit more respect. (laughs) (laughs) It's just little things like, I don't think there's any spoilers here, so Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein creates a being using sort of, you know, bits of dismembered corpses and Mm -hmm. a jolt of electricity. He runs away from it, basically. He doesn't like what he's created. The thing starts killing people. um, But weirdly, it also learns language and literature and starts to, you know, kind of form these really incredibly informed opinions. And it talks sort of like a classically trained actor in the text. So so you've got this kind of weird thing where, you know, this is a hideous, deformed monster and you're being told that everyone who sees it just like screams in terror. At the same time, it's sort of talking like John Gielgud. (laughs) So I found that quite tricky. And then there's a, there's a like he agrees to make a bride of Frankenstein, basically a partner for Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and he he ends up going to a remote place to do it. So he goes up through England and uh, up to the, he decides to go to the Orkneys to make the you know, the, the female monster. And uh, on the way during this thing, he's supposedly terrified, and this thing's like killing people left, right, and center, and tracking him down. He's sort of in fear of his life. He keeps telling us how terrible it is, and then he says, "Edinburgh's nice." <laughs> it tells you all about Arthur's seat and all these kind of lovely like viewpoints that you have from Edinburgh. And it's sort of, there's a, like, a page and a half that turns into like a tourist brochure for, for you know, his little trip through Edinburgh. So it feels like that doesn't quite ring true with a man who's sort of supposed to be scared for his life and horrified at his, you know, what he's achieved. So and, hang on, are you saying that you think that Mary Shelley was taking a bit of the Edinburgh tourist board <laughs> dollar? I wonder. And then I'm thinking, okay, he's gone to Orkney, he's, like, he's rented out this remote shed and he's making the female version of Frankenstein. And I'm wondering what his raw materials are. I mean, where's he getting the corpses and, and stuff from? Just digging him up, no? It doesn't mention that he's doing any digging for himself. What's probably happened is there was a page and a half talking about where he went to a cemetery and was digging up loads of uh, female body parts. Yeah. Uh, and then the Edinburgh Tourist Board, who were paying for the book, said, <laughs> uh, Mary... We really need a bit more stuff about Arthur's seat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's maybe. probably just that. Yeah. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. I feel like it's the reader's loss slightly there. What's our big question going to be? So our big question is going to be: Could we? Create... Where did he get the female <laughs> body parts? <laughs> could we create Frankenstein's monster? 
And have we tracked down an absolute legend? We have. So we've got uh, Dr. Catherine Harkup, who's a chemist. Uh, she's a science communicator. And she wrote a book called Making the Monster, The Science Behind Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's quite on the nose, this booking, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, fit for purpose, definitely. Mm. And uh, and so we started by asking her to give us a sense of like the historical context. Two hundred years ago, things were a bit different. So the century before Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein had been an extraordinary time in science. There had been discovery after discovery, and science was moving from a kind of ad hoc interest by wealthy people in their big uh, country houses to a professional job, as it were. So people were employed specifically to do science, even though they weren't called scientists. For example, to demonstrate the pace of this discovery, in 1729-ish, virtually nothing was known about electricity. And yet about 20 years later, people were writing many, many page-long volumes of the history of electricity because so many discoveries had been made in the space of just 20 or 30 years. Once people had a reliable source of electricity, they could start splitting up uh, chemical compounds to discover what they were made of. So the periodic table pretty much doubled in the space of 100 years. So this extraordinary pace of discovery was really exciting for those involved. To those who weren't perhaps so familiar with the science and weren't keeping up with the rapid progress, it could be seen as terrifying. People were showing their latest findings um, in big public lectures. Science was definitely the hot topic of the day. So 1816 was known as the year without summer or in America it was known as 1800 and frozen to death because the year before there'd been a huge volcanic eruption and it had spewed clouds of ash and dust into the upper atmosphere and this meant that the whole planet pretty much cooled. Harvests were washed away in incessant rain, it was freezing cold and Mary Shelley, uh, Percy Shelley, her stepsister Claire Claremont and Lord Byron were all uh, trapped inside this Villa Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva. And because it was such miserable weather, they were just bored out of their minds. They couldn't think of anything to do. And I think in a moment of sheer desperation, Lord Byron said, we'll write a ghost story, we will set a challenge, we will each write a ghost story and try and scare each other. And from this, two literary genres were created. This simple throwaway comment. Mary Shelley went away and invented science fiction, which was Frankenstein. <laughs> And John Polidori, Byron's doctor, who was also there on the night, went away and pretty much invented vampire fiction, which culminated in things like Dracula about 80 years later. Castle Dracula? Yes, that's where I'm going. You mustn't go there. We people of the mountains believe that the castle there are vampires. So... These nights of telling ghost stories were intermixed with discussions of science and um, speculation about the principle of life and if there could be some material, some spark that was the stuff of life itself. And all of these things kind of mixed together created the perfect storm. 
So at the time of writing, so early 19th century, what were the challenges that uh, an actual, like a real-life Dr Frankenstein would have been facing in trying to create his monster? So the first thing, I guess, is, as you keep banging on about... Where am I getting the parts from? <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite quite a central thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's actually you need some parts to stitch mm-hmm. together. Yeah. So um, one of the things that was going on at the time was that if you were executed for murdering someone, mm-hmm. then you were going to be dismembered as well. It was kind of like an extra disincentive uh, for, for murder, is that you're not just going to be killed, you're going to be chopped up. Could be proper killed. Yeah, <laughs> killed twice. And so if you were a murderer, your body would be chopped up and, and given to people to do experiments on uh, or just for anatomy research. So there was, you know, a source of bodies there. But of course, there weren't enough murderers to go around. Always the problem. Yeah, I mean, it is a big problem. Um, so basically what happened is uh, people who studied anatomy, people who were training doctors, basically started to offer cash to people who would... Uh, grave rob so you would have these gangs who would go to the churchyards and dig up recently interred corpses uh, and hand them over to the medical establishment for money and then the medics would take them off and, and chop them up and learn some more about anatomy sweet yeah so so that would be your best source is to pay somebody to dig up a dead body all right i'm dr frankenstein i've paid a criminal gang to go and dig up some body parts for me i've got all the body parts i need um i feel like it's going to take me a while stitching it all together (laughs) how am i keeping them fresh so (laughs) i mean this this was a huge problem obviously they didn't have refrigeration uh so uh, what they basically did was um when they wanted to study particular bits like the nervous system or whatever they kind of cut those out and dry them out so they put them on like a rooftop or something in the sunshine Mm -hmm. and just dry them out like sort of biltong i guess yeah like sun-dried tomatoes yeah probably not as tasty well, we don't know. Or do we? Uh, no, I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the best things they found for preserving flesh was alcohol. Mm-hmm. So something like whiskey. So so you would get vats and vats of whiskey delivered to these medical establishments for um, just for preserving body parts. Uh, maybe a tipple or two. I don't think I'm necessarily accepting a drink from a man who's saying, would you like some of my whiskey? <laughs> it tastes a bit funny. <laughs> ah, yes, yeah, I've had yeah. a couple of arms in there. <laughs> Does give it a certain something, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So you can, in theory, you know, keep these things. I wouldn't say fresh exactly, but you know, preserved, preserved to a degree. Yeah, yeah. And in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, here we have one of the most perfect specimens of the human brain that has ever come to my attention at the university, and here the abnormal brain of the typical criminal. Observe, ladies and gentlemen. The scarcity of convolutions on the frontal lobe as compared to that of the normal brain. And the distinct degeneration of the middle frontal lobe. All of these degenerate characteristics check amazingly with the case history of the dead man before us, whose life was one of brutality, of violence and murder. Both of these jars will remain here for your further inspection. Thank you, gentlemen. The class is dismissed. And then, so, okay, I'm, I'm skipping through a few steps here. I'm assuming I've got my body parts, I've <laughs> preserved it in whiskey, um, I've stitched them together, I've got to put some blood in, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. At this stage, are people clear on what the function of blood is? Well, what they do know is that if you spill a lot of blood, you tend to die. 
Uh-huh. Uh, so so it seems, well, to guys. Be, seems to be essential. So uh, a guy called Antoine Lavoisier, who was a French chemist, mm-hmm. uh, he worked out that actually body heat would come from oxygen, basically, within the body. That, that would make sense. Um, and then uh, a few years later, you had uh, Humphrey Davy, who, was, who worked at the Royal Institution, um, and was a very kind of famous public scientist, actually worked out that the oxygen was carried to the cells in the blood. So they had a good sense of, yeah. of, of what blood was for. Um, but one of the problems was that surgery was in its early days, really, at this point. So stitching together things like blood vessels and scars and everything, you know, broken tissue, very, very crude sort of surgical techniques. So realistically, if I've even managed to fill these like veins with blood, like pump out the whiskey, put the blood in, the minute I start sort of that blood moving around the body, it's probably going to leak quite badly. Mm. But, I mean, famously, Frankenstein's monster looked like a bit of a mess, didn't he? It was not... Yeah, like I can imagine yeah. a bit of blood leaking out of him here and there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe he needed a transfusion every now and then or something. <laughs> and it was an amazing thing. So uh, blood transfusions, actually, we've been doing since, I think, like the 17th century. So the Royal Society started in London, and one of the first things they did was work on blood transfusions, and they tried it on dogs, and they were transfusing say. between dogs, one dog and another to see whether they could make it all work, and then... Then they ended up like putting the blood of a sheep into a shepherd and stuff like this. I like that era of science, and this is a lot earlier than than uh, Frankenstein was written. But uh, they were just sort of trying stuff out. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, anything goes, really. Now then, yeah, what happens yeah. if we put the dog's blood <laughs> into this woman? <laughs> yeah, and they got really upset. So the, they never published a paper on it until after the French, some French scientists had published the first blood transfusion basically. Mm-hmm. And the uh, English scientists at the Royal Society got really upset. And basically, they rewrote their history books. So there's there's one volume of the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which had the French paper in it. Mm-hmm. And it basically got taken out of circulation. And they put in like, oh, we did this, actually. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a little bit of sort of what we'd call massaging, massaging or fraud. Yeah, yeah. sure. It's yeah, fine, but it was the though. French. It's I mean, fine. you know, yeah, the big thing of the time is electricity. So, so hum- I was going to say, because that's the old uh, jump start. The, the spark of life, as it were. So it's never really sort of very explicit how, in the book, how, how Frankenstein achieves all that he achieves. But, I mean, Mary Shelley uses this incredibly clever trick of saying, because um, it's all sort of narrated by him, or that section is narrated by Victor Frankenstein. And he says, of course, I'm not going to tell you how I did it, because, you know, I don't want you to have the same horrible experience as I had. Lovely. So, I mean, he's done a good job there of evading it, or rather, Mary Shelley has. Uh, Dr. Frank... Frankenstein. Yes? Isn't it true that Darwin preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case until by some extraordinary means it actually began to move with a voluntary motion? Yes, it seems to me I did read something of that incident when I was a student. But you have to remember that a worm, with very few exceptions, is not... A human being. From the early experiments in electricity, people were basically trying to electrify everything from tablecloths to kettles and chickens and anything they could get their hands on. They very soon realised that electrical shocks could make muscles twitch. People didn't really understand how muscles contracted at the time, so a guy called Luigi Galvani, who is an anatomist, wanted to find out more. So he decided to use electricity to make frog's legs twitch. And he came to the conclusion that there was this thing called animal electricity. 
and he was somehow releasing it in his experiments and this was making the frog's legs twitch. Um, he wrote up his results and another man called Alessandro Volta read uh, these results and disagreed with him. He said, this animal electricity idea is rubbish. I'm going to prove that um, you don't need an animal. What it is in these experiments is metals, two different types of metals. And from that, he basically invented the battery. Everything we have today, every electrical device that is powered by a battery, comes from this single discovery, an argument over the nature of electricity 200 years ago. So people now had batteries that they could use in all sorts of experimentation. Doesn't the bringing back to life what was once dead hold any intrigue for you? You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. Dead is dead. But look at what has been done with hearts and kidneys. Hearts and kidneys are tinker toys. I'm talking about the central nervous system. But sir... A combined interest in anatomy and electricity progressed from making frog's legs twitch to making human limbs twitch. And it got progressively more advanced to the point where a guy called Giovanni Aldini, he had the hypothesis that electricity could be used to revive the recently deceased, people who had suffocated or drowned. But to prove his ideas, he had to conduct the experiment. You need a recently deceased person. One became available in 1803 in London, not far from where Mary Shelley was living. So in 1803, a man called George Forster was convicted of murdering his wife and daughter. And part of his punishment, after he had been hanged, was to be handed over for scientific experiments. So one January morning, he was hanged. He was left hanging for an hour. Then he was cut down. His chest was opened, basically to make sure that he had died, uh, because not all hangings were successful back then. Um, his heart had stopped beating, so his chest was stitched back up, and he was handed over to Aldini. And Aldini was waiting with a huge battery, and he started applying wires from the battery to different parts of George Forster's body. He started with the head, and he put the wires in the ears, and the head, this dead head, started to move from side to side. One eye opened. Um, he applied the wires to more parts of the body, to the arm. The fingers started to twitch like he was playing a violin. They even tried to reanimate this person who was clearly dead. So they cracked open his chest and they applied the wires directly to the heart in an attempt to restart it. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. Fortunately, for all concerned, they were unsuccessful. But if you read the description of these experiments, it is uncannily like the moment of reanimation in the Frankenstein novel. It is also very reminiscent of those scenes of Boris Karloff on the slab starting to twitch and move after he's been electrocuted um, in the 1931 film. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! In the name of God! Run! 
Maldini, you naughty <laughs> bastard. <laughs> I really like the phrase, waiting with a huge battery. <laughs> Just primed. Right onto the heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not messing about. No, I love all that. Do you? It's, yeah, I do. I just think a little why bit not? gruesome. It is a bit gruesome, but they're just having fun, aren't they? They're just like, <laughs> we don't really know, but they're let's, not really hurting let's anyone. Have a go. Yeah, it was very much a have a go kind of era, wasn't it? Apart from Aldini, has anyone else tried to uh, knock themselves up a monster? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have actually. Well, I don't know about trying to create a monster, but uh, there was a guy called Robert Cornish, nineteen thirty-three. Gentlemen, instead of the experiment slated for today, it may be our good fortune to witness one that will make history. Dr. Cornish will endeavour to resuscitate a dog that's been killed by gas. Basically, did a load of experiments on dogs, suffocates them to death. Right. And then puts them on like a seesaw while infusing sort of blood and saline into them to try and get the circulation going again um, and uh, giving them adrenaline injections as well at the same time. While Dr. Cornish and his aides are preparing, Dr. Kendrick is mixing the revitalizing fluid. Excuse me, gentlemen. Um, And he says that the the fourth and fifth dogs were successfully revived. I took this dog from the pond myself. Gassed. He now is lifeless. Dr. Cornish and his aides will not begin until the stethoscope and watch ticks verify this. But never fully recovered. I'm not really sure that that's actually... Maybe they just weren't properly dead. Um, yes, but he's saying that he's killed them and then yeah, brought them back, brought to, them back life. to life. So that's, his, that's mm. his thing. It's not really creating a monster as such, it's more being a monster, perhaps. And I will have the formula that will start the blood circulating again. And with it, breath. And with it, life. Um, so um, he actually then went on to make a film about his own work. Of course which he starred in it. It's called Life Returns. So, this is the culmination of a dream. Dr. Cornish is the man of the hour. Then, of course, there's the Russians. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so, uh, for about 30 years, they were, they were all over this. Um, mm. And here we have Vladimir Demikov. Who is the don of this stuff? So he... Ah, <laughs> uh, he's... Uh... <laughs> this is so bad. He's cutting the basically the head oh. and forelegs off of a dog. Yeah. And yeah. grafting them onto another dog's back. So it looks like the, the, the dog that's being grafted is sort of riding the other one, Yeah, pretty it? much. Yeah, it's, it's really unpleasant. But then somehow the, the top dog which doesn't feel like the right phrase somehow not really the top dog still, no it's still alive yeah it's still alive the, so, so the, this the video i mean there's really good clear video and photographs of these things um and they're both dogs like eating, eating and drinking and stuff and but they never lo- lived he did this like he did 20 of these things <laughs> and um they always ended up with tissue rejection issues so they but they would both well, die yeah, so it's sort of But it is when you watch these, we'll, we'll post up some of these uh, videos. They are not for the squeamish or, I would say, for the dog lover. Or, oh. I mean, actually, not really the, the, the band of people who are at is quite narrow, <laughs> but you probably know who you are. Yeah. Uh, then ni- 1970s, a guy called Robert White actually um, transplanted a head of a monkey onto the body of another. And it was right. basically fine, apart from the nerve damage, which meant, you know, it was paralysed 
obviously from the neck down. So, so not fine, fine. Not fine, fine, no. Uh, but the heads could see and taste and think and feel and... and um, Did it live? Yeah, it was actually believed that, that they could just keep living like that, uh, but so they did could... euthanise them. Right, They, they okay. didn't like, allow it to carry on. But presumably nowadays, like with, with modern-day science, we must have pretty good tools that would enable us to make a kind of um, Frankenstein's monster. We can't bring dead stuff back to life, can we? You need a live head. You need head live least, stuff, really. But actually, what yeah. about, like, dead body parts? You could whack that onto a, onto a living head, couldn't you? Um, well, as long as they're really, really fresh. So this yeah. is, I mean, this is organ donation, isn't it? I mean, effectively. Mm. Um, but doing a whole torso, especially from bits. Mm. No, Harder you, than Ikea. I mean, for for a start, Frankenstein would have had the problem of tissue rejection, wouldn't he? Because he had he got body parts from various different places, yeah. uh, all of which would have rejected each other. How do we get around that today? Well, you have to do a massive immune suppression. So, mm-hmm. so you inject them with drugs that that suppress mm-hmm. the immune system. So you basically, you know, this thing would have to live in a bubble. You know, otherwise it would just catch an infection and die. So much as you've mugged the, the book off, Brooks, <laughs> Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is still considered to be the first true work of science fiction. Yeah. And it's... Didn't sell very well, actually, when it was first published, by the way. Just it's saying. still... I mean, it has one of the greatest legacies of, of, any, yeah, yeah. of any work of fiction, Obviously, 200 it? years on, my books might be doing better. I don't know. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, won't we? I yeah. might freeze myself and wake up <laughs> just to confirm <laughs> that they aren't. <laughs> Uh, Well, we asked Dr Catherine about how the novel has influenced science and fiction ever since. And now for our lesson. Remember, this is bread. Bread. And this is wine. To drink. The publication of Frankenstein was initially quite a quiet affair. It wasn't this huge, raging success that everyone imagines it was. Not many copies were sold. However, everyone started talking about it. And there were very soon after the publication, there were theatrical interpretations. The monster soon became the stumbling, kind of groaning, green-skinned, horrible monster that we know and love today. <laughs> So he's very much entered popular culture. No, no, this is good. Smoke. You try. (laughs) There is some influence on science as well. Directly, almost as a consequence of Frankenstein, we have pacemakers. So there was a guy called um, Bakken who remembered as a child going to see the 1931 Boris Karloff Frankenstein film. He remembered seeing the body on the slab twitching and this room full of electrical equipment and sparks and lightning. And he got thinking, if you could miniaturise that equipment, could you actually control the electrical impulses across the heart? And he went away and he invented the first portable pacemaker. So science has influenced Frankenstein, Frankenstein has influenced science, from good science to good science fiction to bad science fiction to good science again. Love is the only thing that can save this poor creature, and I am going to convince him that he is loved 
even at the cost of my own life. Frankenstein's intentions were never evil. He wanted to contribute to science. He wanted to create a creature. It did go horribly, horribly wrong for him. He lacked foresight. He was desperately in need of an ethics committee to see what he was to oversee what he was doing. And he never, ever saw the potential downside of his experiments. He only ever saw the good. Do you want to talk about sheer muscle? Do you want to talk about the Olympian ideal? You are a god! And listen to me, you are not evil. You are good! And... There is a huge lesson for science and for all of us today to think about the consequences of our actions and to take responsibility for what we do. Because Frankenstein, the moment this creature opens its eyes and starts to breathe, he runs away and abandons it. And this, if you're expecting to read Frankenstein as a kind of horrible, scary, gory novel, what you'll actually find is a really good morality tale about... um, how we should look after and treat others in our world. I'm going to teach you, I'm going to show you how to walk, how to speak, how to move, how to think. Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... Can we create a kind of like 21st century version of Frankenstein's monster? Well, it depends how you define a monster, really. But there are definitely attempts to kind of try and reprogram or re, you know. I mean, so Victor Frankenstein goes on about how, oh, you know, this he's going to create this creature anew, and it'll be like he'll be like a god to this this thing that he's made. Mm. And we have various attempts to create new, entirely new biology. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the main proponents of this is a guy called Craig Venter, oh, yeah. who helped uh, sequence the human genome mm-hmm. with his own DNA, obviously, because mm-hmm. he's a little bit of a narcissist. Of course he is. And, um, and so he you know, announced a plan back in 1999 where he said, right, um, I'm, we're going to f- create a synthetic biological genome. So we're just going to sort of make it up effectively. So this genome has never been created in nature by evolution. We're going to do it ourselves. And he said at that time, he said, Mary Shelley would have loved this. So that was mm. kind of his thing, his line in the press conference mm. was this. And then eventually he did. So they created um, a sort of new genome mm. uh, that they implanted into an E. coli bacterium. Uh, they called it Cynthia, as in synthetic biology. And he said this is the first creature on the earth whose parent is a computer because it was made on a computer. Right. A computer controlled the robots that made all the DNA using, you know, bottled chemicals and he said you know this creature which could replicate and everything and, and could eat and you know and do you know it was definitely alive but it had no precursor on earth at all so people said at the time you know this is kind of playing god this is a little bit frankenstein in a way i suppose that the 21st century equivalent of frankenstein's monster will be Artificial intelligence. If yeah. we if we create a sort of artificial intelligence that's conscious, that would be it, wouldn't it? I, th- I think it would. I mean, I think that's what people's f- like at the time. The fear of like 
yeah, a monster that's, that's created by man and all the things that come out from it. And, and I think maybe we could learn the lesson from the book, actually, about you know, artificial intelligence, because it's about taking responsibility for your mm-hmm. creations. And mm-hmm. you know, these things actually you know, could turn into monsters that control us and that cause us endless problems. Uh, and they are, are of our own creation. They're kind of you know, sometimes quite hubristic creations. You know, we, we're doing it maybe for the wrong reasons. And so, you know, maybe AI is the modern Frankenstein. I figure that Frankenstein is not a term that is massively appreciated in the scientific community. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how you want... If you see, like, the first article about your work... Yeah. Uh, ...and it's got the word Frankenstein... Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you're like, oh... F- <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the press office is going nuts at this point, isn't it? Yeah, they, they've done a Franken-whatever. Yeah. Know. So Frankenfoods is the classic, isn't it? The kind yeah. of... The, the thing that's said about genetically modified food, it's like Frankenfood, which is just designed to instill fear in everybody. But for, that's what's so successful, isn't it? It's like 200 years later, this Franken thing just like still has Persists. such resonance yeah. that it causes people to say, oh, no, you know, I'm not touching that with a barge pole. So the question was, could we create Frankenstein's monster? Well, no, not in the flesh. Definitely not. It's not going to work, is it? I mean, it's a lot of problems there. Also... Electricity doesn't bring stuff back to life. Maybe that's the central thing that we should talk about. Is like mm. actually, you know, that vital spark idea at, at the time of Mary, Mary Shelley's writing this book. You know, it's not electricity that brings stuff to life. I'm afraid. What is it? We don't know. Do you know what we don't, actually don't know? No, it's amazing. What, isn't it? what causes you know dead stuff to be alive? And and scientists have stopped really asking the difference between what's dead and alive. They're just not allowed to talk about it anymore. Because nobody can really define what it means to be alive. Because it's just a bit of a cul-de-sac. Like, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley. Edited by L. Scott. Special thanks to Dr. Catherine Harkup. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you. It does really help. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish, where I'll be posting up some naughty dogs with two heads. I've been ill for about four months with the um, this nasty E. coli. Yeah, yeah. I'm now wondering, is it Cynthia? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Cynthia. Have I got Cynthia down there? Oh, I mean, that would be why it's not responding to antibiotics, presumably. Yeah. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 